there's a lot more to that. So I encourage you to go listen to it, but nope, read it. Um, but the <laughs> advice is listen. Um, so listen. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today we are celebrating Black History Month. Jacob is going to bring us something fun and pop and culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Black Marriages Matter, wisdom and advice from happily married black couples. And then in good or bad advice, we'll be discussing recommendations about how to reduce our being white people's racial bias. Uh, if you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attached podcast. Or as always, you can just go straight to the source, uh, our website, attachedpodcast.com, and send us a message there. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, so on, please rate, review it, and subscribe to it. We would greatly appreciate it. But before we get to all of the goodness today, what have you guys been up to? How's it going? We bought a house. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we've been up to this week. I mean, we haven't officially closed on the house. We won't do that for another three weeks. But yeah, they accepted an offer. And I don't know if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see some of the empty shelves. We've already started packing Oh my up. goodness it's, gracious. It's going to be a quick turnaround. We're excited, but it's a little bit crazy going on here. Moving in when it's a high, well, hopefully it won't uh. be there, but today it's a high of seven degrees. So no. yeah, it's going to be a cold move, but luckily we're hiring movers because we're not oh, going yeah. too far we're going no. like six minutes away from where we are now so that's <laughs> nice. it's a big move clear yeah. across like three blocks so, yeah that's so funny so yeah we're excited about that but also like trying to figure it all out but other than that things are going pretty well yeah big fun. news woods what have you been up to so lately we've been playing a lot of board games and, they love board games. Uh, yeah, I do too. And my daughter's had um, mixed reactions to board games over the years. She is very into winning. So if a game yes. can be <laughs> won, then she is into that game. Uh, so it's very interesting mm. sort of parenting move to try to strategize, like developmentally, where's a game that she can feel like she can master but not be so easy that it's like boring for everybody mm. else. It's yeah, the yeah, worst. Yeah. And so we have been playing the game Villainous. I don't know if you've played no. Villainous before. It's probably a little bit above her developmentally. So sometimes when we have tried it, it's a little bit of a stretch. I would suggest that your child should be mm. not tired or hungry okay. or like any of those other <laughs> risk factors. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's been really fun to watch her start to strategize because in other games, there's like maybe a little bit of strategy, but it's more sort of like, you know, uh, chance, sort of like going through the motions and like, you know, it mm. feels fun for grownups playing because you're like, Okay, well, you rolled a six, you win, I guess. I don't know. Um, but this is sort of fun to watch her start to develop like this yeah. strategy piece to it and start to get excited. You can see the wheels turning about like, here's what I need to do this move. And then the next few moves, this is what oh, I need to I try that. to do. Yeah, it's really fun. I definitely recommend the game, but I would say it is developmentally a little bit beyond her. So she needs some coaching yeah. to help understand what okay. the game is, but then she can get it. And anyways, so that's been a lot of fun. I can imagine her like listening to this podcast and be like, mom, sure. it's not above me. That's right. <laughs> For sure. If she could hear this right now, I would not remotely yeah. be using any of those words. <laughs> she is excelling and we are just going to play more of it and it's going to be great. <laughs> Gosh, I love board games. The two that we really like at our house recently that are also fun for kids kind of her age and adults 
One is, maybe we've talked about this before, Sleeping Queens. Have you done that one before? Oh, yes. That's a good one. I like that, that one. A good one. And there's another one called Dragonwood. Have you done that one no, before? No, I haven't. That one's a lot of fun. It's about like mm, um, cool. strategy like you're talking about, but also you have to kind of understand numbers and risk. So sure. like the odds of something happening. So it's nice because cool. you can also throw in a little math there, which I like a lot, sure. um, but it's still okay. a lot of fun and it has like oh, dragons cool. in it and it's like a card game and you try to win different oh, points cool. and dragons and things like that. So oh, it's totally rolling dice that and stuff like that. It's yeah. a fun one. And Thank it's a nice you. small box too, which I sure, always sure, appreciate sure. small boxes. I gave away several boxes while same said child wasn't looking yesterday <laughs> to the neighborhood. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> free games, free giant Amazing. games for, yeah. I bought a new kitchen gadget. Ooh. <laughs> it's really not that fancy of a kitchen gadget. I bought a mandolin. Mine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Several years ago. And I've been trying to like get by with like very cheap alternatives or a knife. But I finally broke down and got one. Nice. Uh, it came in the mail. Maybe Friday. And you guys, the number of things I have cut very small. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday, I saw this concoction for like a lemon ginger syrup thing. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, This mandolin has like thing where you can like julienne it too, where you can just do a straight. So like I mandolin very cut finely or julienne ginger and lemon, like a bunch Uh, of it. And it's now like seeping and steeping in my refrigerator. I cannot wait. Like for drinks or like? So on the face of it, it's supposed to be for like enhancing teas and like other water for like herbal medicinal stuff. But I'm really excited about it for like adding vodka (laughs) to it and water <laughs> so it's like honey lemon and uh ginger mm. and it's just that's like cool i'm really excited about it so that nice. and then this morning and i was like hash browns so i did a bunch of potatoes and onions so anything that you guys are the wonderful listening audience thinks that maybe i should use my mandolin for hit me up let me know i will it's... at this point cut anything food related really <laughs> anything teeny tiny. yeah your poor kids are using their like tiny little fingers to eat all their lunches <laughs> <from> <laughs> Yeah. Forever. Everything is Julianne. Uh, perfectly <laughs> Those symmetrical. Kind of terrify me. Like I oh, feel like I would use that. I little would cut my fingers sure. right off. I'm a little bit terrified. Unless the New York Times recommended that you get right. a mandolin, and then you'd <laughs> <Yeah>. have one. <laughs> um, I mean, it's yes, kind of like yes. the thing that you cut over the top of it. So, and then personally, for me, whenever I cut something, I like look at what I'm cutting. So I know if I'm like getting my fingers or not. That's always like a really good thing oh, to like pay attention wait. to. It's like you oh, use your eyes to gauge like where your so, fingers are so and the blade. The kitchen guillotine. Is that another name for it? No, you don't know. I don't know. My yeah. daughter had the role of historian in the classroom and brought a historian report this week that was like some French king that was killed by the guillotine. Yeah, and then yeah, I didn't know been. that that's what she brought. It was something my husband helped her with, right? And then later that day when she came home, she was like, I, we got in trouble for that report because all the kids were like laughing and like talking about the guillotine and like what it was. And then the teacher was going to show them a picture of a kitchen guillotine, apparently. I imagined to distract them to like move them away from the conversation and it got more out of control so she said well we're not gonna look at that anymore and the class got in trouble and so that was why i was wondering if that's what happened i <laughs> love that your daughter got in trouble because i can imagine oh, so her and jesse like putting together a really 100%. intensely i was like boring, oh yeah jesse why did you let her take he's like yeah 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 how did it go he loved the fact that it got the whole class in trouble oh yeah. my god that's so funny i'm like that's so bad it's so awful that's amazing so I was wondering if that's what a kitchen guillotine was because that's what she told me. Tried to. No, this is a kitchen guillotine. It's like that bagel cutter. Oh, Oh. okay. This is what she was working hard. But the mandolin is there too. Oh. Okay, so lots of versions of guillotines for the kitchen. And also, what pops up is a desk-sized guillotine. In case your Wait, boss starts to annoy oh, you. Oh, that's not like. Right. Are you gonna like? I, I don't right. even know what you'd use that for. No, nothing. Jokes, weird, yeah, creepy jokes. jokes. No, but I think you're right. I think it's mostly um, the mandolin or also legutin cheese slicer. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So anything dangerous. And that's how you spell guillotine. I would have never known that. 
Like, I just saw that when you held up your phone. I would have not spelled it like that at all. It's supposed to be French. It's guillotine. Man, that's where it started, right? That king's head ruled. <laughs> he did. <laughs> up pop and culture we learn about relationships from our friends and families but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture for this first segment we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships jacob what oh. do you got for us i'm gonna kind of build off of what i talked about in the last episode of like the which was remind of- us Yep, the danger of a single narrative. Okay. And this is going to be a little less like reality television pop culture and more like New York Times pop culture. Oh, Not pop culture really, okay. per se. But I feel like this is really throwing like down the really, New York Times here. I feel like this is really kind of, especially where we live, and I'll get to that in a little bit, like really on a lot of people's minds, especially during Black History Month. So have you all read or listened to or watched the new series, 1619? It's been out for a little yeah, while, right? it's not right? that new, right? Yeah, no, it's not new, oh, okay. but the series on Hulu is new. Oh, I haven't no, seen like, that. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. So there's now a series out. Have you listened to the podcast? Also really good. But the original document came out in the New York Times, I think it's like 2015, 2016. It's still very much so in the political and social discourse currently. It's like, um, right? Oh, yes. Very good use of that word. Um, and because everything for me has to tie back to Iowa, the lead author and editor of that. <laughs> so relatable to our entire audience. Thank you, Jake. She is from Waterloo, Iowa, where my wife currently works up in Waterloo. Ah. So um, the first essay of the 1619 Project is about her experience growing up in mm. Waterloo, Iowa, mm. and the history of that city and how it relates broader to the history of the United States of America. And if you've been listening to there's a lot of political backlash against this and somehow it's morphed into what is called critical race theory but if you've listened to the podcast or read the articles online they are fantastic and interesting and what i think is so important and what nicole hannah jones talks about in her work is again this idea of when we have a singular narrative that is allowed to go unchallenged We're not allowed to grow. We're not allowed to change. We're not allowed to develop out of that narrative. So, I mean, really, the 1619 Project is about challenging some of the notions we have in our nation's history, challenging some of the assumptions and ideas that we have. And the thing is, too, is I feel that when we are embedded in a nation, we share a founding story that's so singular, but I feel like, Yeah. yeah, very singular. And I feel that distills a cultural ethos into a nation, which influences the narratives we tell about our families and what's acceptable to share and what's not acceptable to share. And as that distills down into our families, sometimes we can keep those narratives very rigid. But when we have the flexibility to um, explore other parts of our family's narratives or legends, we actually learn more and provide more context to the people that we love. And when we do that, we are able to see them for kind of that more holistic and realistic picture of who they are. And I think that's what I love in terms of relationships about the 1619 Project, that it gives us the freedom and flexibility to bring up other stories that have gotten lost. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, that allows, again, that authenticity, those options, those multiple storylines and narratives to be infused within our lives and our relationships. And as we do that, we find that we're more able to connect with others in new and different ways. I know there's been a lot of pushback against the 1619 Project. And if you're listening to this and kind of one that's skeptical, go read it first if you haven't. You can for sure criticize it if you want, but make sure you've read it and approach it because it's really interesting and really fascinating and really challenges some of the um, singular narratives that have been passed down in our nation's history for a long time. Um, So yeah, go check out in multiple forms, the 1619 Project. Yeah, definitely. We will uh, link the podcast yeah. here in the description of this episode. That's always my preference is to listen to somebody um, mm-hmm. tell me rather than read it myself because, you know, time and, and whatnot. Fantastic. Yeah. Now we're going to jump into our academic deep dive segment. Last episode... We're referencing a lot the previous episode, so go check it out. 
if you haven't yet, um, we discussed new research that showed the uneven benefits of marriage across racialized groups and the higher risk of poverty for black and Hispanic families, regardless of marital status. Today, we're going to discuss what keeps African-American marriages that last strong with a new paper titled Black Marriages Matter, Wisdom and Advice from Happily Married Black Couples, recently published in the Journal of Family Relationships and written by Drs. Uh, Antonia Skipper at Georgia State University in Hotlanta. I believe that's how they refer to that city. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's listed that way on all. the paper. Yeah, here, no. You're the uh, Georgian here, Patricia, so I think I you know. would know the best. I say that jokingly because in the 90s, there was a promo ad for Atlanta that called it Hotlanta, and almost everyone who lives in Atlanta hates it, like despises it. Um, so... <laughs> Um, as a joke to all of my friends who live in Atlanta, I always refer to it as Hotlanta and like you can see their rage build. Um, so maybe it was an inside joke just for me. Um, so I apologize, Antonio, if that <laughs> upset you at all. I, I really didn't mean it. Um, Lauren Marcus at BYU, TJ Moore and David Dalheit. Also at BYU, these authors explore the strengths of enduring Black and African-American marriages using interviews with 35 happily married couples. Though African-Americans are the least likely racial or ethnic group to be married in the U.S., the authors point out that African-Americans value marriage and very often hope to get married in the future. In fact, on average, Black adults tend to value marriage more than white adults. However, there have been many barriers to marriage for African-Americans, especially social and economic barriers driven by structural inequalities that result in high mortality rates, higher rates of incarceration, and lower educational and job opportunity rates for Black men in particular. Marriage may be delayed until financial security is established, but the unequal economic access experienced by African-Americans makes this an enormous challenge. Research documenting these disparities has, as we discussed in the last episode, contributed to the broad negative narrative about African-American families, which also distracts from the more accurate depiction of existing structural inequalities baked into U.S. policy. The authors of this study explained that developing a better understanding of strong African-American marriages and soliciting their, quote, narratives of expertise, I love that, is important for describing the full breadth of African-American family life. And these narratives could serve as advice or wisdom from marriage, quote, insiders to younger generations hoping to marry. Applying the knowledge of marital success from, as these authors describe them, a uniquely qualified group of Black marital experts may help others to also achieve marital bliss. So, Sarah, it sounds like these authors were looking to develop a collection of, um, may I say, good advice, uh, which you know we love here, of course, at Attached. Can you share more about how they did this and, of course, what they found? Yeah, so as you shared earlier, this study was doing interviews with 35 African-American couples. These couples were from a larger research project, the American Families of Faith Project, which explores mm -hmm. intersections of faith and family life. And these interviews were with prototypically strong African-American couples, that was the way the authors described them, from 11 different states. California, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Ohio, etc. They contacted first what they called community gatekeepers or typically clergy, religious leaders, um, or engaged members of the African-American community is how they described these gatekeepers for referral to couples who might meet the profile of what they were looking to achieve, uh, really looking to get this um, advice from people with strong marital experience. And they found these 35 couples. So 80% of them were in inner city neighborhoods, which they also described as potentially contributing to greater marital stress. Also, these couples had to answer eight or higher on a scale of one to 10 on a question about how happily married they are. So one being not at all, 10 being very, they had to score eight or higher. So they had yeah. to be not only married, 
but happily married, and they had to be married for at least seven years. So part of their reasoning was that half of divorces across the U.S. occur in the first seven years, or essentially they were using the seven-year itch as their cutoff, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The average marriage length for these couples, though, was 26 years. So much longer. The average age of husbands was 56 and wives 54. So middle-aged. Education ranged from high school diploma to graduate degree. And the average income was 58,000 a year. I think it's important probably also to know that all of these couples were dual income couples. So dual earner, both earning an income. Um, And in these interviews, they asked 20 open-ended questions Uh, in the couple's home. So they went to the couple's homes to do the interviews and they interviewed husband and wife together. So in research, we typically see, even when we're doing couples research, we separate the husband and wives and do an Mm -hmm. interview typically with the one partner and then the other partner. When in reality, you can get really rich understanding of how couples work together when you interview them together and talk about their relationship and that they have lots of obviously nonverbal communication that they do too when they're with each other so that the narrative that they would each tell rather than being afraid that they're going to edit or revise their story based on who's next to them, the other frame for that is they're going to enrich each other's story and build on that narrative together. It's really a very cool way to do qualitative research, I think. So they asked questions such as, what advice would you give to young African-American couples that desire a strong marriage? So what they found across all of these interviews Once they coded the interviews, which on average lasted for 105 minutes, so they had tons and tons of data, they coded all of those interviews and they found three big themes. Mm. The first theme they called communication keeps small issues from becoming big barriers. Uh, And I know, I like that they really gave these intentional titles. You know how I feel about titles. (laughs) I love them. Um, I also really love alliteration, which I feel like they do a very good job of in these themes. Um, So one of the most common pieces of advice from these couples shared by 29 of the couples was about maintaining open communication, being really key for sustaining and um, remaining resilient to conflict. Communication was key for conflict resolution. So they discuss this in a few different ways, but especially common, we're talking about how important it is to be willing to talk about things that are uncomfortable and Mm. also to not hold it in. So when you have something that you need to talk about, when there's an issue in the marriage, when there's a problem, they described that it's really important to nip it in the bud, as one person said. The longer you let issues go untalked about, the bigger they become. Really, this communication was two ways. They talked about how important it is to hear both sides of an issue, but communication wasn't just about conflict resolution. It was also about these gestures of love and support that they showed each other that they thought was really key for their marriage. And one person said, and I really pulled out this quote because I just thought it was so sweet. When you get up in the morning, God has given you another day to ask each other how you feel. Oh, I, I know. That's um, amazing. I know. That is like- it's so lovely. The quotes in this paper are just beautiful. For sake of time, I haven't pulled many out, but also if you're um, somebody who's interested in research about families, he's pulling out these narratives of strength. It's just delightful. They also talked about how over the span of their relationships, husbands tend to grow to become more effective communicators, um, that they also learned especially to listen more mm. was part of that. That was described by both husbands and wives. That wasn't just a wife-only thing or a husband-only thing. Um, that was sort of a process that was happening across couples. The second theme they described as share roles, share responsibilities. So this is really about these couples talking about how important it is to be willing to work together as a team and to play any role on the team. Ooh. I know. 23 of the couples shared advice on having an egalitarian household. So part of what they talked about that was really important was accepting changes in roles, but especially the reversal of traditional gender roles. So this gender role fluidity, if the wife was employed and earning an income while the husband was not, and you are having sort of a reversal of a traditional breadwinner role, it is really important to accept those changes and find a way to make that work for your family. Because what's important is that there isn't income and that we all shift to support that that's how the family's operating right now. They also talked about role reversal being considerate, that even if I'm not typically doing the work that you do, that's maybe more traditionally gender defined, I can pick up some of the work that my partner does to relieve them of some of their labor. So wives describing that, um, 
their husbands to just sort of relieve them of all the work they have to do might they find them folding laundry they find them doing dishes it's also considerate they're taking care of each other mm. and then also this importance of being willing to compromise and being the other person's number one fan oh. and the third theme was manage your money to manage your marriage i told you the titles Ooh. these themes are so beautiful i know almost all couples discuss the importance of financial management for a lasting marriage that financial stress is the biggest stressor for marriage and that they said that therefore financial management and learning to manage your money decreases the possibility of financial stress impacting the relationship. They described aligning financial goals and priorities uh, together. Uh, But some of these couples also discussed recognizing the strengths and weaknesses of each spouse. So that it may be that only one person needs to manage the finances. It doesn't need to be that we both do that work of managing it together, that one person might be better at it than another person. And also having two people working at it at the same time could be tricky. Yeah, And then also earning money, they describe sometimes as a selfless act for the family, that your role as an income earner is to bring that home and you're giving that to your family. It's a selfless gift, Mm. um, which is really lovely. The author's goal, as you described, Patricia, was to develop this collection of advice to understand what advice these particularly strong marriages Mm. would have for younger African-American couples. Of course, we can't know for sure that this advice is helpful, even though that was sort of the overarching goal. Right. Um, But I do think that they're describing um, what we know to be really key about marital success across couples so communication issues role confusion financial strain these are really big contributors to marital stress for any and all couples but what they're developing here in this research is advice that shows that maybe developing couple skills in these areas might be especially helpful for black marriages Um, and also the authors point out it might be helpful to sort of emphasize these three areas in couples therapy with african-american couples Mm. i for one am not somebody who necessarily talks about financial management unless a couple or family brings that to me and that is i'm sure to my patient's detriment so (laughs) Uh, that wasn't in my notes, but as I'm thinking out loud, it's probably something I should do. <laughs> so I do think that there is probably this overall theme of teamwork too, that when I read these themes anyways, I sort of heard this through line, this thread of teamwork, and they describe that too as teamwork, but these ideas of compromising and how important it is to work together and adapt to your partner's communication style and have role fluidity and be able to change and shift and be flexible to each other's needs and what the family's going through at the moment, sharing those financial responsibilities, coming to financial agreement. It's a lot of different pieces of teamwork and they sound really intentional about it when they're describing it, um, which is potentially also driven by the fact they've been asked to give advice, but I just love it. I think that's so beautiful. I think it's, as the authors are describing it, it's really important to understand how marriages endure, um, but also what is within the control of families that they can work on potentially that also might help buffer them from stressors that are beyond their control. That buffering piece, I think, is um, really important, especially like the forethought that people have Mm -hmm. uh, or potentially Mm -hmm. have about that. Yeah, if you're thinking about doing premarital counseling or premarital education Mm -hmm. with African-American couples or you are an African-American couple uh, pursuing that, it might be really important that these three areas show up in that prep work, right? It could really help enrich your relationship ahead of time to be intentional about that. It's a really, really good point. I think it's just so clever too, this type of research, kind of strengths-based research. I don't think that there's enough of it. um, And it's so important to help inform research, inform practice. Of course, we can't um, necessarily infer like causal links, like these might not help every single couple, but I think coming at things from this strengths-based approach is just so critical for lifting up different communities of people, especially ones that are historically underserved, marginalized. Yeah, it's just so important and really cool and exciting. And it fills you with like, I don't know, butterflies and fun types of feelings like that too. Joy, yeah, for sure. Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media. 
oh, the social media blogs, so many blogs or vlogs, as some people refer to them. It's video blogs. Oh, okay. I don't know. Maybe it's the thing from the 90s. Um, and numerous top 10 type lists, but a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, ladies and gentlemen, we're using science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Attached Podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. Smash that subscribe button, you guys. Just smash it. God. And as always, share it with your loved ones. You know they love it you know they do. So in celebrating Black History Month, we're going to talk about ways to reduce racial biases while dating. I thought about this topic when I saw a TikTok, I know, surprise, surprise, about a white woman at Domestic Blisters discussing correcting some of her own racial biases. So for some background, Domestic Blisters made a comment about Pete Davidson. Then a Black creator then brought to her attention that the comment could easily be perceived as racist. Domestic Blisters then realized her mistake and took the video down. Then one of Domestic Blisters followers commented referring to the black woman who first brought up the racist comment um, saying, the commenter said, I was referring to the woman you were insulting in your video. A true queen doesn't need to break down other women. Have the day you deserve, which in uh, TikTok land means like double middles. I love that I'm like the translator of TikTok to you guys. It gives me such joy. I know this is a bit confusing, but basically a white commenter said that a black commenter should not have corrected domestic blisters. Now, here is domestic blisters comment back. Uh, no, you are 100% in the wrong. I am not insulted. She was not insulting me. And your response to thinking she was insulting me by correcting me is in fact racist. And in fact, I took my Pete Davidson video down after seeing her stitch. Um, I don't ever need white people to do this for me. I am not broken down by someone pointing out to me that I have done something problematic or racist or that I made a joke that turns out wasn't funny because that person has done something racist. I absolutely do racist things and think racist things. I don't want to, but it is a process of deprogramming all of the things that I was raised to believe in a culture that is racist. And the last thing I would ever want is anyone that follows me pushing back on a Black person who is willing to share their information experience with me. So kudos to Domestic Blisters. And I think what she brings up is really, really important that we're all white podcasters. We genuinely don't intend to be racist, but it's important to recognize that we have biases that we were taught from a very early age, from the society we live in. So when it comes to dating and romantic relationships, I kind of wanted to take a dive into ways that people can correct their racial biases, even if they maybe are unaware that they do have any. So before we get to that um, article, any thoughts about domestic blisters? Uh, great advice. Like, I didn't think you could comment on TikTok. Like, they like comments like you write them out or like, yeah. do you like record a video on that? Either. I, uh, uh, okay. That's, called a that's stitch still... if it's a video. Oh, it's a stitch. Okay. And then a comment. Mm. It's just a comment. Come on, um, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like what she is talking about is really the expectation here. That's what we want to be doing. When we do something wrong and if someone corrects us, it's having the wherewithal, the humility, the sense to say, yep, I was wrong and I'm going to own that. Um, because as she said, and I agree, we live in a culture that fosters racist ideas, racist policies, and those can be ingrained in us sometimes with us knowing and sometimes without that, right? And so being able to own up to the fact that we do think racist thoughts, we do say things that are racist, and that we're willing to try and correct that to root that out of ourselves is what I think is great advice. So yeah, good advice all around. What's yeah, I'm not sure that I have necessarily um, like science to 
support why I think it's uh, a really helpful frame necessarily. Um, But I appreciate her point that this African-American woman that had commented on her initial video was doing some labor. She was putting work and energy into doing some teaching and giving some feedback about here's what you might want to reconsider. And I think that we don't want to discount that um, when anybody is putting it to work, but especially when um, minoritized, racialized members are giving us feedback about our work. I think that's pretty important. Yeah, it's our job to listen. Um, so that led me to this article posted on the Washington Post, How to Navigate Race While Dating, Five Bits of Advice from Experts by Lisa Bonos. So the first bit of advice is if you're online dating, reconsider your bio and any mm-hmm. filters you have. Some dating apps and sites allow users to filter their matching so that certain races or ethnicities don't show up as potential matchers. Mm. Grindr apparently has recently gotten rid of that. Some app users state their racial preferences in the bio. While daters might feel strongly about such preferences, some experts advise that limiting yourself might impede your search for love. When Lori Davids Edwards, a love coach in Los Angeles, used to run searches for online dating, she and her staff would encourage them to cast a wide net. You want to do as little filtering out as possible. So experts Lori Davis Edwardson and Adam Cohen Aslati gave feedback on that one. If you're online dating, reconsider your bio and any filters you have. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, I think if you have the expectation that a certain group of people are not going to have the qualities you want based on these socially constructed categories we've created around race, you need to examine that idea a little bit because, you know, good people exist all over the place. And when you limit yourself to certain ideas that maybe are rooted in racism or maybe are rooted in other ideas, I think you're going to miss out on the opportunity to meet somebody really great. So I think that it's good advice to cast a wide net because in that wide net, you may find somebody that you are really compatible and can really build a life with. So good advice. Good advice. What's Yeah, I think um, it's sort of interesting how the use of these dating apps, I would say uh, new technology, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily considered new technology anymore. It's new to you. It's just, you're right, right, right. Um, is really interesting in terms of how these filters can potentiate our bias, right? Mm. It's taking bias that already exists and discriminatory beliefs and sort of narrow lenses that already uh, exist and sort of um, capitalizing on those to invite people to select out Uh, people that they may not be interested in dating. And when there is a selection choice that is based on race, ethnicity, you're inviting that bias to show up in a really overt way. Um, And so I think there is research to suggest that filtering effect on apps will take the already pre-existing bias that we have and sort of maximize that. And so examining how that perpetuates social hierarchies, uh, power imbalance, but also in your own personal dating life, how that will perpetuate those potentially otherwise unexamined biases could be really valuable. That's a really good point. That same like process of heightening our own, um, even if they're very small biases is also, you can see a lot on like social media algorithms like YouTube or Facebook. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research out about that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So good advice um, all the way around. Um, Get rid of those filters because they might be potentiating or exacerbating existing Mm -hmm. biases that are already there. So Mm -hmm. the second one is consider what this question is really about. Have you dated someone like me before. Early in interracial relationships, singles might ask if their partner has experience dating a member of their race. It can be a heavy question, said Thomas Edwards, who coaches men on their relationships and is a black man married to a white woman, uh, Lori Davis Edwards above. A big part of this question has to do with comfort, Edwards said, adding that it's essentially asking, how comfortable are you being with me? Someone who looks Mm -hmm. like me or has culture like me. Edwards points out that someone asking this question is often seeking certainty and might be wondering, will we work out? Can I be vulnerable with you? Is it a facade? Because nothing's really certain. He goes on um, in quite detail, and I encourage you to read the rest of it. But what are our thoughts considering what was really behind the question? Have you dated someone like me before? Mm. Good or bad advice? I really like that question. (laughs) Um, 
for a couple of reasons. One, it opens up a pathway to have difficult, intimate, hard conversations. And I think if you want a long-term committed relationship with someone, being able to have those conversations and not just once, but to re-engage in those conversations as you learn more about each other, as your relationship grows, I think is really important. Um, the other reason I, I think too, kind of goes back to that original TikTok you showed, right? You may say, oh, of course, I feel totally comfortable being in a relationship with somebody who doesn't identify in the same racial group as I do. And then you may have interactions in the world where some of that internalized racism or structural racism might push up against that and make you uncomfortable. And if that pathway is there to bridge that gap, to own up, to change, to grow, this relationship might be a way to help you root out some of those racist ideas, to help you push back against some of that structural racism in a way where you can create a safer space for your partner and a way where your relationship can be a place where those complicated, difficult conversations can happen in a way that fosters that growth. So I think good advice. Good advice. What's yeah, I think it's sort of interesting. There's sort of some longstanding research in romantic relationships about how similarity breeds liking, right? The more similar to me, you might be, the more we have in common, mm -hmm. the more we might sort of like and enjoy each other. And sort of in the context of relationship formation that traditionally that has been understood as sort of um, valuable for creating some quick connection. But there's some newer research that suggests that even though we might have sort of stated priorities in who we are interested in partnering with, that doesn't necessarily work out. That isn't necessarily who we partner with. So upfront, we might have some initial sort of filters about what we think we might like. And a lot of times that is associated with what is similar to me. And also we know that the relationships that we end up forming and that last are not necessarily tied to those filters or our stated preferences whatsoever. And so thinking about expanding your lens, expanding your pool, expanding your options um, and trying uh, new and different things can be potentially valuable um, because you might sort of shake off some of those filters that we know are not necessarily predictive of long-term relationship quality and success. Yeah, excellent point. And some research that we've covered on our own pod already. Yeah, so that's really yep. exciting. Building on what you're saying, I just wanted to highlight one other piece I didn't read from that comment. Um, Amiri mm -hmm. Ice, uh, a Black gay matchmaker and relationship coach, um, mm -hmm. works with single Black men, said the person asking this question um, is also probably trying to determine how much work they're going to have to do to interact with you. If sure. you're dating someone who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with your culture, you'll have to be willing to occasionally be disrespected or offended. And if mm -hmm. you vocalize those feelings, your partner might push against that. In a relationship, if the other person is open to learning and hearing that as a possibility, I, I might be more willing to engage in that experience. So I think also it's an interesting question, what's behind it is trying to understand the other person's experiences, but also for that person asking the question, kind of, it's a way to gauge, are you really open to this? Are you really open to the hard stuff? Not just like the fun surface, different um, level of dating mm. somebody uh, from a different race. So mm. I thought that that was a really important um, aspect to that too. So number three, be willing to examine your own biases and educate yourself. That kind of builds nicely off that last comment. I mm -hmm. noted another place racial biases pops up. If you want to date someone exotic, that's a bias, he mm -hmm. said, um, noting that seeking out specific identities can be mm -hmm. a form of tokenizing someone or objectifying their identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I would actually go further. It's not just a form of, it actually is tokenizing no, sure. um, yeah. and objectifying <laughs> their identity. But I appreciate him trying to soften that for um, us uh, white folk. Um, if you only date Black people and none of the other people in your life are Black, you might be tokenizing. Mm -hmm. If you're in an interrelational relationship, don't expect your partner to shoulder the burden of educating you on their culture. He suggested reading books and hiring an anti-racism educator, which is cool. I didn't, I guess I knew that they existed, but I didn't know you can hire one for, for individuals. Yes, yeah, that's really sure. awesome. Um, learn from a person who's 
in the culture what to do or how not to perpetuate white supremacy. Um, white people will ask their black friends, what should I do? To that question, ICE responds, you have to recognize that with minorities, we live in a racist society every day. There's already a lot of heavy lifting that black and brown people are doing every day. You want to take that personal responsibility for your own education. So I said a whole lot of things, ICE, not I, um, about being willing to examine your own biases in education. Um, I'm honestly going to dare you to say bad advice, but um, <laughs> anyway, good or bad advice. I'm just kidding. Um, great advice. Uh, you don't want your partner to have to shoulder that burden to provide you with that education. In fact, if the most recent bachelor, not this season, but the last one, Matt Yay. James actually <laughs> broke up with the woman he chose at the end because things later surfaced that she hadn't done the work around racism. And he said, I can't do this work for you. Mm. If you want to be with me, we need to take some time apart and you need to do this work. So mm. I haven't really followed them too closely after the season, but they are back together. And hopefully she has done that work. So he didn't have to do that for, for her. Um, so I think that is great advice. What's yeah, I think um, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to rise to your dare for sure. <laughs> um, uh, I think this is important to do whether or not you're partnering with somebody from a different race, ethnicity, cultural background than you. I think this is valuable um, for people to be doing regardless. Um, in the context of romantic relationships, it's probably essential. Um, yeah. And so I think there is, um, a lot of legacy of racism. And if you're coming in to a relationship where sort of understanding what that experience might be like and how to sort of um, interact and become member of maybe your partner's family or friend groups or just sort of to understand their experience, it's not sort of just a daily experience that I think research would talk about in lots of different ways, this legacy and this weight of racism and your own um, personal bias or sort of just the edges of what you don't know and are new and unfamiliar for you. Um, you, uh, I think in an effort to maximize the quality of your relationship, to really show your partner that you care, putting that kind of work into that is really important. It's not just about educating yourself and your own sort of benefit at examining your own bias. I think it's also really critical to the quality of the relationship and an important thing to do for your partner to show that you care. Yeah. So overall, we're saying like very great advice. And this is just a cornerstone of a quality relationship. So next is simply put, listen. Jasmine Diaz, a black matchmaker in Los Angeles who's married to a Puerto Rican man, says the most important thing someone can do with their partner when their partner discusses experiences with racism is to listen. Listen to the experience of a person and try not to dismiss it. There's a lot more to that, so I encourage you to go listen to it, but nope read it. Um, but the <laughs> advice is listen. Um, so listen, good or bad advice. Great advice. And I think how you listen is, was evident in that TikTok you showed, right? Of listen, hear what they're saying, and then do the work, right? In this instance, it was take down the video and say, hey, this person was right. I was wrong. I'm owning it up to that. Um, so I think great advice. Great advice. What's I would argue there's few pieces of advice that are more key um, <laughs> for having uh, quality relationships, but certainly if there is maybe interracial dating uh, or you have a partner whose um, cultural uh, heritage is different from your own and you're wanting to learn, not listening would be the opposite of good advice. Right. Um, uh, I think so we no, against think, a whole lot of research as well. Absolutely. Um, it is part of uh, learning your partner and part of doing some work to dismantle racism in the context of your relationship. But also, yes, you're right. Um, buckets and buckets and buckets of research to support how key it is to listen to your partner, not just to speak. So great advice all around. I like the listen we're uh, uh, definitely agreeing with. And then, you know, there's the next part of that, which um, they said, you know, don't dismiss it, but also if it's something that you are doing, mm -hmm. fix it, make your words 
match your actions or vice versa, make your actions match your words. Um, all right, last but certainly not least, uh, talking about race can be uncomfortable. Embrace the discomfort. Conversing about race can create intimacy, Davis Edwards said, even if it's difficult. All intimacy doesn't look like rainbows and hearts. I love that. Some intimacy is uncomfortable. Shay knows this firsthand. When her boyfriend dismissed the notion that law enforcement officers kill people of color at higher rates than white people, she figured he didn't want to listen to her stories or try to understand her experiences as a Black woman. After hearing the reassurance and that he's willing to learn, she felt better. I'm glad I feel safe and comfortable to talk to him and have those uncomfortable, awkward conversations, Shay said, and that we're getting to the point where they're not not awkward anymore. Thoughts, good or bad advice? I love this advice. I like how they say, you know, intimacy isn't just about rainbows and I don't remember, but I really like that. Yes, because intimacy is about bridging those places that make us anxious, right? When we can learn in our context of our relationships to tolerate that discomfort, we can then grow in our relationships, which deepens that intimacy, that deepens the vulnerability that we have because we feel safe with that person. So not only I think is this really important when it comes to ideas around race, but I think it's a good principle in general to have meaningful relationships. We need to be able to listen and tolerate those things that make us feel uncomfortable in order to improve those relationships. So good advice. Good advice. What's Yeah. I mean, I'm a therapist, so I'm really super into embracing vulnerability and discomfort. Um, And I think there is a lot of value to how much growth can happen individually when you're doing something new and you're sort of at the edge of what you're comfortable with and being more vulnerable, not so uncomfortable I think research would say that you can't sort of approach it at all. Um, And so sort of scaling those conversations and scaling how you approach it um, so that you're likely to be successful, that that vulnerability is likely to deepen your relationship. I think uh, that is one of the best ways to grow a relationship. And certainly when it is necessary for you to be examining your bias and your um, uh, internalized racism and um, your uh, understanding of power hierarchies and big picture issues that are also in between and around your relationship, facing those uncomfortable conversations is necessary. Absolutely necessary. Good advice. We agree intimacy can sometimes be uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. 